This is Game Crush, where we talk about a game we're really enjoying, and hope you will too, after we gush about it. I'm very excited to speak with our guest today and about his game. He's a game designer, podcaster, lawyer, game facilitator, and pretty cool all-around person. His designs trend towards narrative structures and mechanics that impact and promote specific types of stories, most recently mysteries in a variety of formats. He is also the creator of the Gauntlet Gaming Community, which encompasses many gamers playing games, a network of podcasts, and a tabletop RPG publishing house. Personally, I think what he's got going on in the publishing space with his car from Brindlewood games are some of the most interesting designs existent in the current RPG landscape. Public Access, our game crush for today, happens to be one of them. With that, I introduce Jason Cordova. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. Did I miss anything? I don't think I missed anything. No, that was a very great, flattering intro. I'm into it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so what's new? It's been years, like a whole ongoing pandemic since we've talked. Yeah, and maybe more. I think it's I think it's been like five years since we've talked. It's been it's been a minute. 2018, 2017, some something in there. Yeah, something like that. Um, no, I mean things have been great. I you know I think since we last saw each other and spoke. I kind of like got into the publishing side of the gauntlet much more in earnest and much more seriously and made it like an actual proper business because it was kind <laughs> of just a more informal thing before that. You went full time, right? You're full time game designer now? I did. Yeah, I am full time. Yeah, yeah. And that was driven by a few factors. One of which is I had a really bad health scare, which I uh, managed to get past, which was great. But it had this like positive thing where it basically lit a fire under me to kind of do the things that I want to do, you mm -hmm. know, like it was sort of like an eye opening moment of you have to stop doing things that other people expect you to do. You have to stop like, you know, like, like just pursue your passions. And I was like, you know what, I really love role playing games and I'm going to, I'm going to do this as my job. And so I kind of set myself up pretty well in the gauntlet as a sort of like launching point for that, you know, just like having spent years building up this community and stuff and the podcasts and all that. You know, we published Hearts of Wulin, which was a smaller game, but it was is a good game to sort of get a feel for doing a standalone game product. And then we moved into Trophy, which was very successful. And now we have the Brindlewood Bay line of games, which is just really taking off. Like people are really excited about them. And so the reception has been really great. Your health scare, I know from what I heard, was it was cancer. It was cancer. Yeah. Congratulations on on getting through that. Thank you. Thank you. I guess on a, on a lighter note, we don't have to talk about this too much if you want to, but you went on your first date in several years. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't <laughs> yeah. want to pry too much, but I, I hope it was a positive yeah. experience. It was, uh, yeah, it was, I had been out of the dating scene for like five years. You know, I don't want to dwell on this necessarily, but cause I don't know if listeners care, but like, you know, one of the things that happens when you do have like a really like bad health scare is you kind of go through this like period where you feel undesirable you know like you you feel like i'm just like a nearly dead thing that you know you know <laughs> you kind of you, like like that's what i had to work through anyway i had i mm -hmm. went to a lot of therapy to get it sorted out but because of that though and then combined with the pandemic which was sort of ha which kind of happened right after my health scare i don't know I just, I just didn't date or see people or do anything like that you know and so yeah i went on my first date in like five years and it was fine <laughs> it was good to get out there you know so you know. yeah good i'm glad it's almost like we're, we're trying to get back to some sort of normalcy in the world. Something like normal. Yeah, yeah. Despite the fact that it has not been a normal few years, on the plus side, it has been like an opportunity to really focus on other things, you know, like, you know, the pandemics, you know, was obviously terrible in so many ways. But one of the things that it did for me, at least, was it sort of forced me to, 
you know, stay home and like just focus on things I'd never focused on before, you know, and I don't know if I would have done that otherwise, you know, so. Oh, I get that. You try to make something good out of the bad, you know, and you just, you know, it's sort of how my life has been for the last, well, basically since 2019, I guess. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I finished, finally finished my first novel. So, you know. Oh, congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's terrible. So, you know, it'll never see publication. <laughs> even What's after it about? Seven rewrites. It's a, it's a fantasy story. Okay. Actually, in um, the Streets of Avalon setting, which is uh, mm, a, a thing okay. that Encoded Designs has published. Oh, okay. Cool. Cool. That's fun. Yeah. Let's move towards gaming since we're talking about now, you know, creative endeavors. One of my favorite quotes from you is mechanics matter, but play culture matters more. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what that means to you personally and how you've infused that into the gauntlet gaming community? Yeah. It's specifically system matters, but play culture matters more. And Sorry. the reason, <laughs> yeah. And the reason why is because it's meant to play off the whole like system matters, like, you know, thing that people have argued about, you know, forever since, you know, the early two thousands. Around Mr. Rick and Mark, we all believe system matters quite a bit. I do as well. Uh, but I do actually, I do think play culture matters more though. And what that basically means just to unpack it a little bit, I always like to say that this quote is going to be on my, my tombstone. Mm -hmm. Yes, system matters. I do think it's important. I do think mechanics matter. I think rules matter. I think all that stuff is important. But at a certain point, the play culture that you've developed at your table can sort of like help smooth out the rougher parts of system. It's not to excuse like bad games or bad systems, but it is just to say that a big part of role-playing games is that sort of energy at the table, that rapport you have at the table. And when I talk about play culture, what I really mean is the rituals and procedures that we do in our various spaces, like whether it be at our home game, whether it be in a community kind of thing like the gauntlet or whatever, those things all have a big impact on the play experience. You know, there are some people who are very, you know, they have like this very like opposite sort of view, which is that like system doesn't matter at all. Game design doesn't matter at all. All that matters is what we sit down and say at the table and we can make anything work. I don't take that view. But I do think that your particular play culture, your home game, your your community, wherever it is you play, maybe you're a Twitch streamer that has a certain play culture, right? Mm -hmm. That has a big impact on the experience and indeed can help kind of smooth over some of these like other things. Some of those popular games on Twitch are games that I don't care for from a system level at all, right? But there's this particular streaming play culture that takes over, right? Like, yeah. I think you see that a lot with a lot of the, like vampire, you know, streams and stuff like that. So that's kind of what it means. It's just this idea that like role playing games are really interesting because they're games, but they are games where the rules both have a really important function, but can also often be discarded depending on what's going on. So I just find it fascinating. Yeah. From a personal level, I think that if as a player and as a facilitator, if you have some level of, and I don't mean rules mastery, but I mean system mastery, yeah. then you can really start manipulating and getting the things that you want out of a game and out of a play session without invalidating what the game is trying to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I love that quote. It just, it's one of my favorite things. And uh, I thank <laughs> you for taking the time to, to give your point of view on it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get into public access. Okay. I love this game. Thank you. I'm glad you like it. I haven't loved a game like this since I started playing Dungeon World, and that's saying something for me. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, that's 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 good company to be in. Uh, that's good. Yeah, I, I've probably run more sessions of Dungeon World than any other game except maybe maybe Fifth Edition D anD D. I think they're they're probably mm -hmm. around the same. But that's how excited how excited I am about public access. Okay, I love it. Yeah, and it got me by just the cover. <laughs> I saw that cover on yeah. Twitter one day, and I was like, "What is that?" That seems fascinating. Yeah. And then I heard it was Carved from Brindle. I'm like, I'm not super 
like sold on this whole, like the mystery isn't like dictated at the beginning to solve. And then I like read the game and I'm like, nope, never mind. Okay. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm a, I'm a go. So, so I'm, I'm completely biased. Like, okay. Totally biased. Do you mind if I, if I provide the elevator pitch for this game? Please do. Yeah. I'd love it. Yeah. Public Access is a tabletop role-playing game about a group of people in 2004, the Deep Lake Latchkeys, who find themselves investigating strange mysteries in and around the town of Deep Lake, New Mexico. In the 80s and early 90s, Deep Lake was the home of a notorious public access television station called TV Odyssey, the history and fate of which, the station literally disappeared, is the source of much speculation in certain corners of the internet. As the Latchkeys conduct their investigations in Deep Lake, they will become increasingly aware of the central role TV Odyssey plays in everything that's going on, and will have to face whatever terrible truth lies at the heart of the infamous station. <laughs> God, <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a hook, right? I think something that I really, I've noticed in my games is they're really specific. <laughs> you know, they have a, a really specific point of view. And, yeah. and I think public access is the Naplu ultra of that. Like, it's like, this is a really specific premise and we hope you like this very specific premise. <laughs> Seems that people do. Feels like it. And I, I've been like trolling the internet, asking people questions about it and trying to find out who else is playing this game mm, yeah. and what, what they like about it and whatnot. And people, people are playing it, which is good. Like normally I would ask yeah. that question and I get like nothing. Yeah. Yeah. We, 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 we kind of focus on getting people to play, right? It's yeah. kind of a big deal in, for us and the gauntlet. We don't want you to just buy the, I mean, obviously if all you can do is buy the game, we, we love that, but like, we really want you to play it, you know? So we try to do things to get people to like, start playing it right away. You know? Mm-hmm. So the genre, it's analog horror. Mm -hmm. For those who don't know what analog horror is, it's horror from like um, the web. Uh, it's a subgenre of like found footage. Mm -hmm. It's things like VHS tapes, FM radio, cathode ray television tubes, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And the creepypasta internet stories that go along with that from that period of time when the internet was new and terrifying. And I guess your Slendermans and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Also, nostalgia. Nostalgia plays a big part in TV Odyssey. And I think small town isolation is probably the other thing that doesn't get talked about a lot. Big part of it, though. Not that anybody's going to see this, but I, I have the Deep Lake, New Mexico sign behind <laughs> me on our, on our Zoom chat here. Like, what, what kind of atmosphere do you think those three things together create? And why did you decide that those were the three things, aside from the fact that you were a kid in New Mexico driving through the desert and saw a hooded man? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the story, yeah. So the idea for public access had been living in the back of my head for a, a good while. I actually published, or not really published, but I put out in the world a version of public access 10 years ago or like nine years ago on Google Plus. And I actually lost that. Like I lost track of that, huh. that version of public access. And uh, my friend Ollie Jeffrey had a copy of it. And he's like, hey, I've got a copy of this. Oh. And he like sent it to me. And I was like, oh, wow, cool. And that was just the other day, in fact. That early version was just about a group of players sitting around the table narrating a creepy TV show, like a public access TV show. It was a children's TV show, kind of like Candle Cove. And the idea was you played characters who were on a forum who got together to reminisce about this old show they used to watch as kids that nobody remembers anymore. And it was an okay game. I wouldn't say it was the most satisfying game in terms of being a game. I wasn't really a game designer back then, but it was just an idea that had kind of wedged itself in my head and I wanted to kind of get something out there. But I kept thinking about it for a long time. And the way that it got to where it's at now is basically in the ensuing years, 
a few different things happened. Like one, um, I became more serious about game design. And so I began thinking and, and in particular marketing and publishing games. And so I, I really got thinking about like, it's cool to have this idea for this game, but how do you like make it into something that is more significant that like can have legs in the market that people will be interested in buying and playing. And we had been sort of developing this desert setting in the gauntlet kind of informally, but this desert setting, uh, this, this, a made-up county called Degoya County in New Mexico, and um, we had done a few different things with it. Nothing like super, you know, codified or published or polished or anything. But it was just something that sort of existed in gauntlet spaces. And I kind of started to think about like the connection between Degoya County, this sort of informal desert town setting that we'd been creating, and sort of how can I incorporate it with this other idea I had about this public access TV station? And that was really where it this sort of idea started to come. That's when it started to come together. I was like, okay, yes, there's this game about a public access TV station. That's super cool. But, but what more is going on? Like, what is the setting? Like, what is the deal? And then when you started to fuse that with all of my memories of childhood and the things that I used to love as a kid, I was a weird ass kid. So I was, I was into horror and creepy shit when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And so I started to kind of pull all that stuff in. I've always loved found footage and the analog horror genres. That all just started to come together. But the thing that made it into a game was Brindlewood Bay. Brindlewood Bay and its companion game, The Between. Those two games sort of showed me from a mechanical standpoint how to make this sort of swirling around collection of ideas into a thing. Makes sense. That's sort of like the high level process of bringing it from like initial idea to where it's at today. I think the more interesting thing probably is what you alluded to earlier, which is this idea that when I was a kid, you know, I have like one specific incident when I was a kid, like when my family was driving through the desert on a trip to California, where in the middle of the night, we saw a hooded man on the side of the road. <laughs> and my family's reaction to that, like that was a big part of my childhood. I was like five years old and, and that stuck with me, you know, mm -hmm. that story has sort of changed and transformed in my mind over the last 40 years because that's what happens with stories from childhood right mm -hmm. you sort of reinterpret them and refilter them and, and it's become this whole other thing um this whole other idea of deserts and ancient things and cults and desert weirdos and ancient things living in the earth and the smash the mashup between like modern day technology and ancient rights, like all that stuff sort of comes together into this like vibe that I find really enticing. And analog horror is a terrific aesthetic for that because as a horror subgenre, it kind of combines these ideas of something that is old, like old TV, old VHS taste, but also something that is fundamentally in technology, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if that's a good answer, but that's sort of how it all sort of knit together, you know? I think it's a great answer. Yeah. I was curious as to the, uh, the influences because when I first saw this game, I'm a, I'm a big podcast listener. I listen mm -hmm. to like, not just, not just gaming podcasts, but all kinds of podcasts. So yeah, like same. there's a series of shows like the black tape, I love it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I know, yeah. right? Everything from the Pacific Northwest story folks mm -hmm. like Tannis and mm -hmm. Rabbits and the last movie, all those ones. Yeah. They seem like they fit right inside of this. Yeah, yeah. I am known for being very much like a fantasy adventure game master and gamer. And yeah. the other love that I have is this stuff. Like, I love the Cthulhu stuff, but really, there's no good game that does this thing. Yeah, yeah. This 80s, 90s, 2000s, early creepypasta kind of analog horror found footage stuff. And then this came out I'm like, this is perfect. Yeah, I, I'm not aware of another role-playing game that does it. I was kind of expecting when we released the game to get those like 
you know, you get those, you know, you release something, you put out in the world, and then you get like five people in the replies who are like, oh, you should play this instead. You know, <laughs> like I was expecting those sorts of replies, you know, here's another analog horror game, but I, I haven't gotten it yet. So I'm, I'm just going to take that as evidence that there's not one out there. So <laughs> yeah, I, I'm yeah. going to guess too. I mean, I, I would have been all over it if they existed. I feel like you would have been too. So I would have at least been aware of it. I think. Yeah. I, I want to yeah. say I kind of, I, there's a couple of games that I think sort of play in the same kind of aesthetic kind of, you know, or in the same, like sort of on the edges or kind of this idea, but nothing that's like really like straight up analog horror. I mean, I can't think of anything like that. Mm. Let's talk about some mechanics. Like let's talk about the game itself yeah. because I think it's important to like, we, we talked about all this, this, this tone, this setting, this feeling, this, this idea, but how does that come out at the table? So I think the first thing to talk about is the, this, this car from Brindlewood gaming system, the idea of, I think the meddling move and the question and clue system combined with this is the thing i love about game design these days and thinking about this stuff it's not just one thing it's how all these different like mechanisms combine together to create something mm -hmm. that works on on a different level the car from Brunel system is like the first piece to me because it's the here's the question of the mystery that's going on and then you have to go out and get into stuff right mm -hmm. and your question system i like it a lot because every mystery has a question and then has you have to go collect some amount of clues mm -hmm. and as once you get half of the clues that you would need it's a complexity it's called so if it's complexity six you need three at least at least boy yeah. boy don't don't do it with with three yeah it's a tough rule just three yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh then you're rolling then the players have to mesh those clues together to figure mm -hmm. out what they think the answer is and yeah. then if they make the roll they're right Yep. Maybe it's more complicated. Maybe it's just right. Or maybe it's wrong. And then bad things happen. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's, that's, that's a good summary. Yeah. To me, that's really cool. I've never been into the whole go out and let the players put the mystery together mm -hmm. games. It's never been a thing for me, but for some reason after playing this now for, we've, we've played seven and a half hours worth of game, three sessions. We only get to play for like two hours and 15 minutes. Okay. We've gone through two cycles and we'll talk about the cycles in a second for those folks that are listening, but I've also listened to every episode of signals from the other side. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. <laughs> yeah. Which is yeah. Jason's AP on his channel, which you should all go subscribe to on YouTube and listen to because it's really good, especially if you want to learn how to play this game. Like that, it really helped clarify some things for me that I was may maybe not completely uh, on board with. Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. yeah. It makes sense. Like it, it just works. And the mystery sheets are so easy to use. They're just two pages or three pages and they have everything that you need it on. There's a ton of stuff on there, but like it gives you threats and mm. dangers and locations. I know it's kind of built off your 731 system. Yeah. Yeah. Loosely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah loosely. Very loosely. I, I could see the DNA of it, right? Mm -hmm, yeah, definitely. Would you explain the 731 real quick for folks? Yeah, sure. Um, 731 is this GM technique. I'm a very like toolbox GM, you know, I like to have like named techniques in my toolbox and one of them is one that i developed called 731 which was actually a combination of other people's ideas that i kind of brought into one idea but the idea is you know if you need to prep for a session and you don't have a lot of time or you just want to keep the prep useful but like quick you can just prepare seven encounters or characters or things just seven things you give each of those things three descriptive details and then you give them one way you can embody them at the table, either a physical embodiment or a quote or something like that. You can definitely see how that plays out in the mystery structure of my games. Like you can see that DNA for sure. Mm -hmm. And all those pieces are right there. There are dangers that are used to complicate the character's investigations. There are locations that have that stuff. But I want to talk about paint the scene questions because I think that's really important for engagement. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then characters, like you said, that, that have that stuff to them. Mm -hmm. So they're easy to like, just sit down and play at the table. I've had very easy time just looking at these characters like, oh, I know exactly what I like, what spin I want to put on them and, and such. So it's very effective. Oh, good. 
Yeah. Um, and then there's lists of clues, which I like the list of clues. And they're not the only clues that can be put into the adventure, be, the, the mystery, mm. the scenario, whatever you want. Mystery, the mystery. That's, that's, that's the proper term for this game. But players sometimes get to make up their own clues and put them in there, which I think is really cool too. That's true. Yep. So paint the scene questions. Would you explain what these are in the game for locations and such? Uh, yeah, sure. So paint the scene is another one of those gym tools that I developed about seven years ago. The idea with paint the scene is whenever the characters enter a new location, uh, this is, and I do this in any game I run, not just, this is not just a thing that is in the games I've written. Basically you pose this question that in the answering of it, it not only helps sort of like create the set dressing and what the space looks like, but it also explores an idea about that space. My favorite example of paint the scene, which I always use when I'm talking about it to people is when I would run dungeon world, and the characters would go to this one particular villa belonging to a Medusa. I would always like ask this particular paint the scene question. How do you know this villa belongs to a Medusa? Looking around, how do you know it belongs to a Medusa? Mm -hmm. And what's great about it is the players are now like really engaged, right? They're engaged with thinking about this, their idea of the space. And as they're answering the question, they're building up this picture in everyone's heads of like what this villa looks like, but also it's a building up a picture that is reinforcing the idea of a Medusa. So maybe one player says, well, all the mirrors are covered up. And then another one says, well, there's lots of stone statuary everywhere. And then another says, you know, oh, well, there's not stairs, there's ramps because the Medusa has like a snake body. And so she uses ramps. That's what paint the scene is, right? It's this like question that the GM prepares ahead of time to pose about a location in order to sort of build out and flesh out the the look and indeed the theme or the idea of that location and what public access and brindlewood bay and my other games do is for the locations on the mystery sheets we have the paint the scene question ready to go it's like right there baked into the mystery and so for example in the starter mystery for public access which is the house in escondido street one of the paint the scene questions about the house is looking around how do you know the family left in a hurry like they left suddenly, you know, like that kind of, you know, it's that kind of thing. Or looking around the parents' bedroom, how do you know they put their children before anything else? So that's what it is. Mm -hmm. It's become a kind of semi-famous thing in the hobby. Like lots of other games use it now. And I think what really appeals to people about it is it really leans into this idea of tabletop role-playing games at their best, in my opinion, are when they're a very collaborative experience, right? That's the strength that role-playing games as a medium have over other entertainment mediums is you have this collaborative storytelling power behind it, right? And so Paint the Scene is a technique that's a way that you can kind of lean into that and really uh, take advantage of that particular strength of role-playing games. Indeed, I think that's what the whole mystery system does, right? Like the reason why even people who are skeptical about it at first, why they eventually discover they like it in most cases is because what's happening is the mystery system also leans into this power of the medium, which is collaborative storytelling. I agree. I wouldn't even know what to add to that. <laughs> we used to call it source the table, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. To paint the scene is a way better version because it's, you were defining what that means far more than mm -hmm. what we used to be like, uh, if you don't have an idea, just ask the players. Like, how do you ask the players though? Right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a little more like guided, right? It's a little more, yeah. Like, like, yeah, it's, it's, it's one thing to say, ask the players this or, or ask them a question about that. But like, it's another thing to like give them questions, right. And say, here mm -hmm. are the questions, you know? 
so this game is is roughly based on Vincent Baker's Apocalypse World. It's got some PBTA stuff inside of it. Doesn't do, yeah. But it's got this twist to me, which I think is very important for evoking personal horror, which is when you do something riskier, face something mm-hmm. you fear, name what you're afraid will happen yeah. if you fail or lose your nerve. Yeah. That right there changes everything about how a game is played. Yeah. Because you're asking the players, it never occurred to me because I played and facilitated a lot of Call of Cthulhu and that right there changes it from being me trying to guess what the players are afraid of to being like, why don't you just tell me what you're afraid of? Yeah. <laughs> it's just a little change, but it does a lot. Mm-hmm. Where did that come from? Where did you get that idea from? Why is that in the game? It's an adaptation of something that came from Monster Hearts 2 and Bluebeard's Bride. They have variations of this idea, like this like sort of let the players set the stakes kind of thing. I leaned into it really heavily and created this sort of like day night dichotomy between the two, you know, like mm-hmm. one move is more dangerous than the other. The nighttime is more dangerous than the other. And the way it's more dangerous is so in the daytime you ask, what are you afraid is going to happen? And then you roll dice. Um, and in the nighttime you say, you ask, what are you afraid is going to happen? They tell you. And then as the keeper, you say how it's worse. That's mm-hmm. how, that's how night makes it worse. Right. Because the keeper then gets to like add to it. Right. And um, so that was my little twist on it. But that's initially where the idea came from, just purely lifted it from other games. But it worked great. It originally came from Brindlewood Bay. Brindlewood Bay doesn't have the same day-night phase structure as the between and public access. But but if the characters are doing something in the day, the day move comes into play. If they're doing something at night, the night move comes into play. It's the same idea. And that was like a really genre consideration for Brindlewood Bay. Like this genre consideration of, okay, when the characters are looking around something in the daytime, it's it's safer in like TV shows that inspired Brindlewood Bay. Like it's always the more dangerous thing to be like, you know, with a flashlight in a warehouse, you know, at night, right? Like that's the more dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. It turns out that this genre convention applies to lots of different genres. Um, and so Victorian horror, yes, it works there too. Does it work in adults on bikes like public access? Yes, it does. And so that was the idea. I wanted to really do a genre sort of thing, but also again. If you look at it, you know, asking the players, what are you scared is going to happen? That's another aspect of the collaborative storytelling, right? Because you're inviting the players into that space of like talking about stakes and like what could go wrong. And they can hardly complain uh, if, <laughs> if they miss the role, you do something really bad, right? Because you, they said what they were worried was going to happen, you know? Not only that, but you've given a mechanic in the game to help alleviate that when it does go terrible. And then you can mm-hmm. really be horrific with it with the idea of this turning of keys. That's right. Yeah. Turning of keys functions uh, a couple of ways in this game. It's a way to survive certain situations. Mm-hmm. It's a way to show the progression of characters down a dark path mm-hmm. or to, you know, open up their their backstory mm-hmm. on top of also like putting those things either in mysteries or right on their character sheets. Mm-hmm. Also, the character keeper for this game is great because every time you turn a key of desolation, which is one of the keys, the key of desolation title gets worse and worse. It glitches out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's so good. It's a good touch. Yeah. Until it turns upside down when you get to the pure white signal. <laughs> <laughs> so these keys. Mm. They function like hit points. They function, not really hit points, right? You know what I mean. They, are, they, are, people, they kind of are hit points. They kind yeah, of are. Yeah, they, yeah. they function that way. They, there's conditions that characters can have that they can clear, which ties into something else we'll talk about in a second. And they do all those other things that we just mentioned. Where did this design thought come from? Is this a wholly original? This is pretty original. It's a little bit lifted from the idea of Marks and Jason Morningstar's Night Witches. That game has a similar kind of thing that happens, but I think what was originally called the Crowns in Brindlewood Bay and the Janus Mask in the Between is now the Keys in Public Access. The way it works here, I'm not aware of any other game that does it this way. 
the idea where it really came from came from is I think you can kind of see in all my game design that I am a person who runs a lot of games all the time. <laughs> I've had a lot of experience at the table. I know what works. I know what kinds of things that people love to do. And I know what appeals to people and something that I kind of fundamentally know about people, at least powered by the apocalypse players, but also lots of other role players is as much as nobody wants to see their character die. People still want to see horrible things happen, right? Like mm-hmm. it's just, it's just a thing. Right. And that's kind of where the whole, like when people like kind of, you know, quote unquote, celebrate a TPK, that's what they're doing. Right. Like <laughs> yeah. they're, they're loving that catastrophe. Right. And this is something I know. And so what I've tried to do in these games is to basically let you have your cake and eat it too. Right. In my games, your characters, we can watch them die. They can get killed and brutally. So, and then you can do this in public access. You can say, I'm going to turn a key and we see a different timeline instead where you did not die and where in fact you got to live. That's the whole idea of it. Like if you ever did like choose your own adventure books, you know, back in the day, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. oftentimes you would like put your thumb on the page, right? Because you want to see what was going to happen. And then if you died, you'd go back and choose a new, a new page. That's sort of what this is. It's still, it's like a do over, right? But it's a do over where we still get to have the fun part, (laughs) but we don't have, but we get to keep telling the story and we get to keep going. That was sort of like the reasoning behind it. The game does not have hit points or anything like that. There's no like health trackers or anything like that. It has conditions which kind of function that way. And then the keys themselves kind of function that way in that they're a overall countdown for your character's retirement. So in this game, when something really brutal happens, it's for real. Mm-hmm. Like that's what the whole asking, what are you afraid is going to happen? Well, I'm afraid I'm going to break my leg. And then I say, well, it's worse than that. You're going to be killed. You know, you're going to get <laughs> run over and dead. And then we roll dice. And if that happens, it happens. We narrate it happening. But then the player always has control. They always get to say, no, that was cool. But no, we're going to come back and do something different. That's what that's all about. And in exchange for that little benefit, they usually have to do something. So in public access, it's about talking about your childhood, because that's one of the game's themes is exploring childhood and childhood trauma. Or alternatively, you can choose the other path, which makes you taken over more by the supernatural forces that are going on in the setting. That's sort of where it all came from. But it's really settled in this idea of, I know what people love at the table. <laughs> you know, And so I designed to give them that. No, it's really cool. And, and to be specific for folks out there, when you turn a key, if you've missed, like if you rolled a six, you can bump it up to a seven and nine. If you rolled a seven and nine, you can bump it up right. to a 10 or up to a 12. Right. That's what the key does, aside from all those other things mm-hmm. that we talked about. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of childhood nostalgia, There's a thing called the nostalgia move, which is the way that you clear conditions by having intimate conversations between the latch keys, which also tie into stuff on your character sheet, the things that take you back and potentially other things too. Yeah. Yeah. It's not complicated. It's just, we're going to have a scene. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about something that takes us back to try to get rid of these conditions that we have, Mm -hmm. which is mechanically useful and also narratively important. Yeah, definitely. Which in this game, like you specifically say, do not tell people about your backstory. Mm -hmm. We don't want to get that before we start playing. We want to get that as we're playing the game. Right. Which I think is clever too, because that feels more like a TV show or a movie or a, a a Netflix series, which I appreciate. Like that's the kind of structure I am looking for in role playing games these days. I don't know if there's anything else to talk about with that, but I do want to talk about play structure. Okay, sure. Yeah. So you have this dawn, day, dusk, and night phase. Right. And I love phases of play. I'm a big, not a Blades in the Dark fan, but I'm a big Forge in the Dark fan. Yeah. Like we've played whole campaigns of uh, of Scum and Villainy, and we've played most of the way through a uh, Band of Blades campaign. So like, hmm. I am all about phases of play. To me, this is brilliant. 
and it's very specific about what happens during each of these different phases. The night phase is dangerous. There's a thing called Odyssey Tapes, which we'll talk about in a second. Mm. The day phase is like your normal role-playing game thing. The dawn phase is kind of like when you make camp for Dungeon World, for those fa- people who are aware of Dungeon World, like you, you can get some experience points, answer some dawn questions, maybe have some of those keys that got turned if you didn't get to talk about them or answer those questions you could do that there and the dusk is all about like a planning phase for the night phase yep that's pretty much how this game goes right Mm -hmm. where did that come from uh well i know it's in the between it's in from the between (laughs) yeah um, okay uh where where, where the between got it though is i like structures of play i like phases of play i'm a big believer in designing around structure a lot of people design around mechanics and like hard mechanics and rules. Other people design around like narrative devices. I do those things too, but I'm a big believer in designing around structure because the most important thing is making sure the game works and it moves from A to Z each session, right? And and structures is like a key way of getting there. So Brindlewood Bay does not have this structure, but the between, which is my next game, did. And the reason why one has it and the other doesn't is because the between asks a lot more of players and keepers in terms of the aesthetic and in terms of the narrative requirements and in terms of like what the game is asking you to do at the table in the moment. It's just a little bit more rigorous than Brindlewood Bay is. Brindlewood mm-hmm. Bay is a much lighter touch in that way. I don't think the between is necessarily a more complex game. I think they have their own complexities in their own ways, but it definitely asks a lot more of players in terms of describing things and living in a particular kind of Victorian London headspace. Something I think about a lot when I'm designing games is is this idea of cognitive load. Like, how much can you ask players to do at any given time, right? Like, what's a reasonable thing to ask them to manage in their head, right? And so the, the structure helps manage that. When we're in the day phase, things are a little bit more relaxed, and it kind of plays out just like a normal role-playing game. When we're in the night phase, though, it's a much more like tight, conscripted process, and you're being asked to do a lot because in the between you have to narrate these outside scenes called the unseen and then you're bouncing back and forth. It's a really fast pace. There's a lot going on in a small period of time, but it's very focused. Like we only have to do this thing and this thing and this thing in this phase, right? And so that's sort of where it comes from. It's managing information and managing like what you're trying to get the players to do. Mm -hmm. And so that's where phase structure or this phase structure came into play. I needed a way of mitigating what was a big ask at the table and making sure that it comes off okay and, and no one's feeling overwhelmed, basically, including the keeper, you know? Makes perfect sense. That's kind of where it came from. Public access, I think, is a little bit more like Brindlewood Bay in terms of information management. And maybe I and I probably could have gotten away without doing the phase structure in public access. But I found that in addition to like its sort of information management qualities, I just like it. I just I just like playing in these structures. You know, I just I just think it's I think it's enjoyable. I think it's fun when everybody knows like what they have to do. You know, it's like okay, in the day I do this, in the night I do this, and I have to get ready to answer these questions in the dawn. And you know, like it, it's just nice to keep everybody. Everybody kind of keeps things in their proper bin. You know. And players seem to like it. Players like to know like what's about to happen and what they have to prepare for. Mm-hmm. That's another thing it accomplishes, in addition to just the sort of thematic and narrative things that day and night and all that does. Plus, it gives a uh, interesting choice to me, which is, do you watch an Odyssey tape or do you just keep investigating? Yeah, that's a new thing in the public access. Yeah, yeah. like the between, it's it's always one type of night phase, but in, but in PA, you get two different types. Just to let you know, so the Odyssey tapes, these are very strange artifacts essentially of tv odyssey there are these purple clamshell tapes that have episodes of the tv shows that existed from this disappeared tv station public access tv station and they are 
not okay. They're not okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> to let you know how good of a job you've done at making this game creepy, they had an Odyssey tape, my group, and they have to watch it at night because you can't watch these during the day and you can't copy them. They can only be watched at night and they can only be watched on VHS uh, players. On a VCR. On a VCR, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But why do I have VHS players? Weird. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I, I, I've used VCRs my entire life. Why did I say that? <laughs> I mentioned to them, like, do you want to watch the tape at Escondido Street, the house on Escondido Street, the evil house, and they all uniformly at the same time said, hell no. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. (laughs) That's probably the right answer, (laughs) but a lot of people still do watch it at Escondido Street. I know. (laughs) (laughs) The Ozzy tapes are really fun. It's the big, like, kind of standout feature of this game versus the other games I've done, for sure. And once again, your Odyssey tapes, like uh, many of the mechanics in this game, serve more than one function in the game. I could explain it if you want me to, or I could just let you do it. I'm happy to do it. So basically, I think it's important to kind of understand what the characters are there to do, right? We talked, you know, Chris mentioned it at the top in the little summary, but I think it's worth saying again, they are the, the Deep Lake Latchkeys, this informal group of, they're now friends. They met on the internet, but they're now friends. They're going back to this town they grew up in and they're investigating this TV station. The only evidence of this TV station are these tapes because the station disappeared. So the tapes are kind of an internet legend. When the game starts, they don't have one yet. They get one right away pretty quickly. But in the very, very beginning, when they first arrive in Deep Lake, they don't have one. And they don't even expect to find one, I don't think. They're there just to kind of have a goofy summer, you know. But they do. Someone does give them a tape and, you know, gets dropped off. And this is their first, like, oh, TV Odyssey. We didn't just imagine that. Like, it was a real thing. Because here's a tape that has an episode of one of the shows. Per internet rumor, the tape can only be watched at night and it cannot be copied to another medium. And they're disturbing frequently, not always. Sometimes they're just weird, but sometimes sometimes they're just, you know, sometimes they're really scary. Sometimes they're weird. The game comes with 20 or so Odyssey tapes to start with, maybe 25. I can't remember or something like that. But we expect there will be more in the future. In the game, what it is, is you all decide, okay, tonight we're going to watch the tape. And so instead of continuing the investigation at whatever the mystery is they're doing, we're going to stay home or we're going to go find a VCR out in town somewhere and we're going to watch the tape. Watching the tape implies is essentially the players answering some prompts. And as they answer the prompts, they build out the scene of what's going on in the tape. And it's like really like disturbing creepypasta stuff. It's very that kind of lost TV episode creepypasta or found footage horror. It's that kind of thing. The prompts themselves are pretty creepy, but then the players just take it to like another level. In my experience, they just go to really dark ass places and it's really, really fun. But while the characters are watching these tapes, different things can be happening. Like in the middle of the tape, you, you, you pause it periodically so the players can go do other things on their little bathroom break or whatever. And then they come back and you, know, so you kind of get to see them reacting to the tape in play. It's, it's like watching a horror movie. You're like watching characters in a horror movie watch a scary tape, you know. In terms of like the game's campaign structure, these tapes, as, as the characters find them and watch them, it progresses the overall campaign structure. And ultimately, once they've watched 10 of these tapes, they get to investigate the truth of what happened to this TV station. And other things are going on in the campaign as well, but that's sort of the, the basic idea there. The TV Odyssey tape structure of it and the mechanics of it came from the between the between has this procedure called the unseen which is it's a similar kind of thing it's this like nighttime scene that's going on somewhere in the city at the same time as what your hunters are doing so it kind of goes in parallel and it's really fun 
I think it's completely novel in the hobby. I don't know of anything like this in other role-playing games. I'm not aware of it anyway. And people really love it when they first do it. Like, they're like, oh, like something clicks in their brain. It's like, oh, I totally get this now. Like, I get what this game is doing. Like, I, at this moment, I totally get it, you know? Can I tell you the story of, of my group's first Odyssey tape and how it, how it came through? If, if you don't mind, if you got the time. Please do. Yeah. You did Video Beat, right? We did Video Beat. The important part of Video Beat, it was creepy, right? So there's the first one with the Cat's Meow Band. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Meow Meow Meows. <laughs> yeah, the Meow Meows. Funny stuff. I love it. But that was like a bunch of uh, rockers out there, musicians out there in full cat get-ups. And then all of a sudden, rats started coming out of like the corners of the rooms, like real nice. rats. They started <laughs> running over everything yeah. and running over them and eventually like running over the cameraman and the TV and blacking <laughs> out. Going back to uh, the the Zap Zap guy, I can't remember his name. The the host, uh, Ray Gun Rosales. Yeah, Ray Gun Rosales. Yes. While that was going on, between they were pausing it, one of the characters is a photographer, and he'd been taking pictures of the house, mm-hmm. and he was scanning them into a scanner that he had. Okay. And you're only supposed to let people basically trigger like one move. Yeah. So I had him trigger the night move early, and I had him roll because I started getting an idea, yeah. and then I waited. And then there was the last thing, which is there's no video. There's not supposed to be any video or any whatever. There's just supposed to be sound or something on the very last prompt. Yeah. And somebody narrated four people that were like pure white sitting in chairs around a triangle looking up. I love it. I was like, cool. Let me add. Do you mind if I add to that and say that's the basement at Escondido Street? I love it. It's so good. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> He's scanning those pictures upstairs. So right after that, we resolve the last bits of the moves. And I'm like, before it, I'm like, I think I know what I want to do here. There's some uh, like like faded lines on there. And I was just going to have it be, they, they described a swirling pattern of terribleness as the thing that's haunted or like let you know that the house is evil. Like that's mm. what they said. There's like graffiti in the house. But I said, no. When you finally get all those pictures printed out, and some of them are the same pictures, there's an outline of four people sitting around a triangle. I love it. It's so good. Yeah. So yeah. then they did the thing, the ritual eventually to solve that. And somebody had to fall asleep to, they opened a portal on the wall and somebody had to fall asleep <laughs> to get through the portal because otherwise they'd be in a lot of trouble. So they fell asleep and they were on the other side and they were uh, the kid Elliot Elliot, they made friends with Elliot and Elliot was like leading yeah. him to the dungeon, which his family was sitting down there in those four chairs. Oh my God. So well, good. three of yeah, those chairs. Great. So like yeah. that reincorporation, right? And Love that's it. the stuff yeah. that you can do with that game. That's mm-hmm. why I'm bringing this up for, for folks that are listening. Like those are the things that you can do yeah. when you have these pieces, just like mm-hmm. this reincorporation, these ideas, these themes. And even though you're running a scenario based game, your version of the house in Escondido street is going to be totally different than what anybody else is going to do. Completely yeah. different. Yeah. No one's going to have that spiraling pattern of graffiti on the wall because that was the question. Like, how do you know this house is evil? Yeah. Like, that was the answer to that yeah. question. It keyed all that stuff. Yeah, I love it. Also, That's... I use Snickers instead of Reese's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there were just Heresy. Snicker wrappers everywhere in the house. <laughs> no, that's... For anybody who doesn't know, Elliot's a little ghost boy or figment of the house or whatever you decide. Yeah, he could be a, he could just be like a psychic anomaly, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know. And he likes candy. Yeah. So you just put whatever candy you want in there. Well, it's a, it's a reference to E.T., right? Because like the little. Yeah, it's totally. The little boy, Elliot. Reference. And then the Reese's, that was Reese's pieces in E.T. But yeah, what I think you've hit on there, which is really great, is when you're watching the Odyssey tapes, there are times built into the game through various game choices that get made where you are meant to do what's called a signal from the other side, where you you make a connection between something in the tape and something in the lived reality of the characters. Right. And what you guys did was really terrific. And you don't even have to necessarily like wait for your character sheet to tell you to do that, but you know, you can just do it because it'd be cool to do it. Right. 
But what I love about all what you've just described is it takes like what was already kind of a weird premise and just like really ramps it up to like 11. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and gets it wrapped up into your version of the house in Escondido street. And uh, that makes me very happy. The the game you're running that's being recorded online has somebody that's stuck inside the TV world. So I mean, you know, (laughs) right. Yeah. Yeah. That is a thing that can happen. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's yeah. It's good fun. Let's talk about characters for a second now. Sure. So the session one layout in the text is perfect. There's like there's actually like a script that you can just go mm-hmm. through. And I just did it. I watched you run the game and I started running the game just like you to see how it played. Because I'm like, yeah, before good. I start messing around with it, I want to I want to see how it goes, right? Because I want to yeah. I want to play it like you're playing it, like like the designer intended it. Yeah. It leads you through lines and fails and safety and all that stuff. And the, the character keeper's got a great section for that. Get the character keeper. Give uh, his name's Ben, right? Uh, ben Bond. Yeah, yeah, very very talented. Yeah, yeah, Ben Bond. Mm-hmm. Give him money. It's worth it. It's one of the best tools in gaming, really. Those keepers. There were the things that take you back. There's the latch key moves, which are fun. They're like little stunts for each character that they can take and eventually take as they, they, they advance and their stats. But it wasn't until we got to our corner of the house yeah. that these characters really started taking on a life of their own and a life between each other. Mm-hmm. Because our corner of the house is, you've already heard a little bit about these characters, but then everybody else gets to decide something that you brought. Yes. And once that happened, they all started talking to each other way more. And figuring out who each other were Mm -hmm. based on those pieces. And it even shifted how some of those characters came out. For instance, uh, Phil Vecchione, one of of my co-hosts, is playing in that game. And he had an idea for being like a computer guy, a programmer guy. Mm -hmm. But because somebody gave him recording equipment, he's like, you know what? This is like the dawn of podcasting. I'm going to show up here and we're going to make a podcast to put on our blog. (laughs) I'm like, that's that's super meta for us, but also pretty cool. But that wasn't his idea. Somebody else did it. Yeah. So that's the kind of stuff that you get from our corner of the house. I think it's really neat. It's really funny you mentioned, uh, well, it's not funny, but it's it's interesting that you mentioned Phil because Phil and I years ago did an episode of, I can't remember if it was your show or one of my shows, but we did this episode about what at the time I called uh, GGG gaming, you know, being giving good or whatever, whatever the three G's were. <laughs> and one of the things we talked about was this idea of get involved in other people's characters, right? Like, like don't just focus on your own character. Like how can you help them have a good experience? How can you get involved in what they're doing? And going back to this idea of I designed the way I play, this is another idea of that, right? Like I built into the character creation process, a moment where you all sit and like, you have to like think of things for the other characters. And in order to do that, you've got to like understand those characters, you know, and you have to ask questions and you got to get in there and, so yeah, it's a it's a fun part of the process. It really gives a lot of like buy-in at the table. I agree a hundred percent. It was enlightening for me. Like I I've seen stuff like that with like Bonds and Dungeon World yeah, and, and yeah. stuff like that, but it really worked. Mm. These characters were individuals and then they were a group. Yep. I, I would suggest everybody just think about that for maybe even other games that you're running, like give everybody a way to like interact with each other. It's, it, it was like that fate thing that mm-hmm. thing when you're like, how am I part of your story? Yeah, yeah. Stuff like that. Anybody can say what they want about that game. I have my ups and downs with it, but the, like that part was good. I thought every part of my games are liftable, right? Mm-hmm. There's not even anything in particular about the mystery system that makes it have to be PBTA, right? I'm getting ready to lift it for some stuff. <laughs> yeah. You can do the car from Birdwood mystery system in almost any, you can lay it on top of almost any other system. Like it would work. You know, there's one thing we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about the big man. Oh, yeah. The big man. How can we forget him? The man. big man is very important to this. Yeah. And I, I like the way that you play him. I actually kind of just copied it. I thought of something else. And I was like, no, that, that works. So yeah. who or what is the purpose and function of the big man? The big man. Yeah. So in the game, the big man is this 
character, entity, angel, demon, god. We don't know what he is, right? But he's, he's, this, he's this entity. Part of what you do as a keeper in the game over the course of the campaign is figure out what his precise nature is. But what we know about him in the beginning is he's this man who is large, very big and tall and wide, wears a yellow suit and a cowboy hat and a bolo tie shaped like the sun. So my other games have like central antagonists, right? Like in the between you have the mastermind and in Brindlewood Bay, you have the cult, right? Mm -hmm. And public access doesn't have that. There is no central antagonist in public access. There's just a central mystery. And so I wanted a way, a character that sort of provides a through line for the whole campaign. I find that's important in the between especially. And so he's not an antagonist, but he is a character who is kind of with you the whole time. He comments on the action, mm -hmm. often out of character or to the audience of players, uh, a little bit like the log lady in Twin Peaks or like the Crypt Keeper, you know, it's that sort of character or a Greek chorus even. He sort of comments on the things going on. He interacts with the latchkeys directly. He sometimes gives them tapes and clues. He shows up at strange moments to say cryptic <laughs> things. He's not a guide because he's not guiding the characters anywhere, but he is just a... He's like a cosmic Greek chorus. He is there to observe and comment. And as the campaign progresses, whatever's going on in this setting is starting to take a toll on him. And he starts to deteriorate. Eventually, he sort of takes on this new form, this more like godlike form. And that's when you know you're getting close to the end of the campaign. That's sort of his function and his role. And when he shows up in game, there's like really specific times you have to reveal him in the campaign. But then you can also just have him show up in different ways, just in the middle of play. It's something that the players always love. It's always a big, big hit when the big man shows up. And so it kind of gives you as the keeper a cool thing to do. And it gives you a character to kind of play. In a lot of ways, he kind of is like the keeper's character, mm -hmm. you know, in some ways. Um, I recommend that people kind of come up with their their version of the big man, like how they characterize him and stuff. I have my own particular version. My co-host on my podcast, Dark and Threshold, Alex, has his version that he does. And, and so that's a fun thing. It's kind of making your big man. Where he came from originally, the idea for him, I actually used to run this old Monster Hearts actual play called Mercy Falls. This was years ago. And he was a character in that actual play. He functioned in a really similar manner. And he sort of was there kind of commenting on the action and sort of being a weird character that the players interacted with. He sort of came from, from there. And he was a really popular character. People really loved him. So the big man has always been sort of like part of that, my kind of like milieu, I guess. I began thinking about where does the big man come from? What is, what is his deal? And without saying too much, I decided, you know what? He comes from Nagoya <laughs> County. That's got to be where he's from. When I was thinking of like a sort of central through line touchstone character for the campaign in Nagoya County, I knew it had to be the big man. And the big man also, it also kind of gives you a lot of those like creepy pasta vibes as well. You get that sort of slender man idea. You get like some of those ideas as well with him. Cause he just appears wherever you want him to appear. He just, he just shows up wherever he wants to. Yeah. And it's the best when he's like, just, you just come downstairs and he's just there. Yeah. Making everybody breakfast. You turn right. Yeah. yeah that was a, that was a really extreme one, but yeah. Or you like come around the corner and like, he's just, you know, he's just in this place. He shouldn't be. He does not have a specific who is he or what is he. That's something that you figure out for your campaign. But my version of the big man is to me, he is like the memory of the place. Hmm. He's like the memory of Degoya County. He's the memory of not just the county, but the land. This land, he is the memory of it and the steward of it. 
spoilers for my players on signals of the other side. It's interesting. In my, my initial thoughts is that he is an entity from a different signal that just wants to get back home. I love, I love that. See, that's that. And that's what I'm talking about. Like, that's like, like you, you, you're going to do your version of the mm-hmm. big man. I think that's super cool. Yeah. I guess the last topic that I want to get into is, is keeper advice. Cause you're a big fan of providing advice for your games. I'm, I'm a dude. Yeah. Your principles and your reactions in the back of this book towards that that section. I think they're they're really solid. They're really good for I think people should be mindful of them. If there were like two or three things that you would suggest to people to really keep in mind when facilitating public access, what would they be? Well, before you even start, I think you should look at some of the media touchstones. I don't know how you run this game and not have at least a passing familiarity with analog horror and creepypastas and the other things that inspired it. I would keep in mind that you are there to react and make decisions and portray characters, but you don't always have to be the decision maker. A lot of times in the game, you invite the players to offer up their opinions and their thoughts and their contributions, and you can always do that even when you're not prompted to do so. I'm a big believer of if I'm stuck, I just say, well, what do you guys think? And then we come up with it at the table together. And then finally, I would say, especially as you are taking a look at all the materials and if you're maybe, especially if you're like a brand new keeper, which a lot of the people who play my games are, especially Brindlewood Bay, I have lots of like first time GMs who play Brindlewood Bay, right? Mm -hmm. You've got this. My games are 100% there to give you just enough tools to be successful at it and not to be overwhelmed. So just do what the text says, run the session one like it says to do it. And, and you'll be fine. When you get to the part of the campaign, if you've gotten that far where you have to write your own mystery at the end, you'll be fine. You have done enough up to that point to where you will be able to handle it. Trust that the game has got you because I am a GM before I am anything in role-playing games. And uh, it's, it's what I love to do in role-playing games. And I try to spend a lot of time like helping out GMs and helping out keepers to give them the best experience that they can because I want them to enjoy my game. But also I, I just believe in a culture of cultivating good GMs in the space, right? I just think it's something we should be doing. I agree. I would suggest anybody who wants to play this game to listen to Signals from the Other Side. That's Jason's AP on his on his channel. I would do that too, yeah. yeah. It's really interesting to watch you utilize this game, especially the base game that I, that I read, and then craft these shifts in the mechanics that fit the narrative in mm. ways that showed me ways to do that same thing. I mm. mean, I probably would have got there with another like 30 or 40 hours of play. But you can just <laughs> shortcut it by just watching Jason do it. Like yeah. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that because that's that's why I put those videos up. So yeah, yeah, I learned a lot actually just by watching those about the game and some things about game mastering. I said to Phil a, a little while ago, this is the first game that's taught me some stuff about game mastering in a long while. Oh, interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about or cover concerning public access? Ah, uh, no. We've this has been a really nice deep dive on the game. I guess my one thing I would say is like, even if you think that horror, and this is a quite intense horror game, even if you think horror is not your thing, or if you're unsure about the subgenres that it plays around in, there are things to love here about this game. If nothing else, it's a game about young people in a certain threshold of their life who are trying to like find meaning and trying to recover from some kind of trauma that they suffered. And that is a sort of universal story. We haven't really emphasized it here in this talk, but that's another hook into the game. It's not just the horror. It's also about these people. Well, thank you so much, Jason, for coming on and and talking about your game. Thanks for having me. I love this game and I can't wait to play more of it. I'm so glad.